Howdy. Howdy. Welcome, uh, yeah, on this Memorial Day weekend, and I want to welcome especially um, those of you who have lost loved ones in the service of our country um, this, over this weekend. And so if, if you have a loved one that um, laid down their life uh, for our country that we might have freedom, I just want to say thank you. Um, we appreciate the sacrifice, and we know that we would not be here if it wasn't for brave men and women like your loved ones um, that did that for us. So I just want to say thank you on this Memorial Day weekend. Um, for those people. So we mind giving them a hand? Those good ones. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, jump to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We are continuing the series um, called Founders. It's New Testament leaders, um, heroes of the New Testament. We are going to be looking at the life of Paul. Which at one level you would say, okay, that sounds pretty easy, Paul, because he wrote much of the New Testament. But what I want to get us to get from the life of Paul is the life of a calling that leads to a great life on mission. And I think we can get that as we look at his life and we might apply some of those truths to our own lives. So let me read for us Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11 through 24. It says this, For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born, who... And who called me by his grace, it pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I was not immediately consulted with anyone, nor did I go to the apostles in Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am telling you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown to, in person, to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Well, who does God choose to use? Who are the people, who are the men and women that are used mightily by God? You ever ask yourself that question? You ever ask yourself, okay, who are the the people that God most wants to use? Maybe it's a famous entertainer, right? It's some, you know, if God would save more Justin Bieber's in the world, you know, we'd all be better off, right? Because then we'd have the clout and the musical gifting to like sing Jesus to people, right? Or maybe it's, it's an athletics. So maybe it's, a, it's if God would save more Tim Tebow's of the world, right? They could throw touchdowns for Jesus and then they could spread the gospel, you know? Or maybe it's just someone that's, that's really intelligent in business, right? So someone that, that has the ability to make money and, and, and do economic systems really, really well. They know how to run businesses and make great companies. And, and maybe if God would save more business people, then he could get his message more clearly into the world. Have you ever asked yourself that question? You ever ask yourself okay, on the turn of that, okay, God is looking for someone more qualified. God is looking for someone 
better to reach the world with the gospel. God needs perfect people or some like pristine people, someone that has achieved something great in order to be effective for reaching the world with the gospel. You ever felt that way? You ever thought that? And as, as we look at the New Testament, I mean, honestly, I think many of us can look at the New Testament. We look at guys like Paul, guys who wrote much of the New Testament, many letters that are all in there. And we would say, well, of course God would use a guy like that. He's amazing. But what's interesting is that the, the theme that we've got to get is this, that it's not the person that God most uses that's, that makes it significant, makes life significant. It's the God behind the person. It's not the person. It's the God behind the person that makes a life significant. Charles Swindoll, in his uh, book, Great Lives, talks about the life of Paul. And he writes this of the life of Paul. He says, the steel of greatness is forged in the pit. It is true of all of us. Don't ever forget that. Especially when you're in the pit and you're convinced there's no way anything of value could come from it. See, God carves character. He prepares his person in pits of life so that they can be used powerfully for his purpose. And when you think about Paul, we don't really know a lot about him in terms of what he looked like physically. But there's one description um, that we have of him in a book called The Acts of Paul. And it writes this of Paul. A man of middle size. His hair was scant and his legs were a little crooked and his knees were far apart. Sounds attractive to me. He had large eyes and a eye, where his eyebrows met and his nose was somewhat long. As they described Paul, if you saw Paul walking down the street, you wouldn't go, clearly the man of God is before us. Like, you wouldn't say that. You'd say to yourself, God used that guy? How did God use that guy? In fact, Paul writes of himself in 2 Corinthians. He says, it's said of him, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, He's unimpressive. See, when you look at the life of Paul, you would not see that is God's man. You would see that looks like a very average human being that God used mightily. And the truth is this. We can be men and women used mightily by God, not in the same way that Paul was used. We won't be apostles in the sense that Paul was. But you can be men and women. We can be men and women used mightily by God if we walk the life like Paul walked. And in this passage, in this section, I want to give you four parts of the path. Four pieces that were worked in the life of Paul that need to be worked in our own life. And if we walk that path, we can be men and women that are also used mightily by God. And those four pieces are this. There's a time of collision, a time of preparation, a time of confirmation, and fourthly, a time of deployment. It begins with the time of collision. Read with me again in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me was not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church and violently, violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He says this, that I wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus came looking for me. I wasn't looking to become a Christian. I became a Christian because of an interaction I had with the person of Jesus Christ. And the first principle, the first collision that we'll face is this. There is a collision of culture. And for Paul, it was a cultural collision. 
He talks about his own life, his own past. He was raised as a Jewish person. And and when Christianity kind of came up and was getting popularity, he was one of the Jewish people that sought to squash it, to push it down. Because it posed a threat to the Jewish faith. And so it talks about in Acts that he held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. Meaning that he looked on positively in affirmation of his own people that were throwing stones to kill Stephen, the first martyr. In fact, when we see Paul's conversion later on in Acts, he is on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians. His goal is to stop the spread of the Christian faith. And there became a collision with him and Jesus Christ. In fact, you can read about it in Acts when, when he came to that place where there was a collision with him and Jesus. Literally, he is blinded while he is walking and he falls on his face to the ground. And when he falls to his face, I love his statement. He says, who are you, Lord? Which, if you're wondering who someone is, like if you get a phone call that you don't want, you don't recognize the number and you get it, you don't go, who are you, Lord? You don't, you don't, you don't respond that way, right? Paul knew he was opposing God. He knew he was on the wrong side. And so when he's on his face, he goes, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, I didn't even, I didn't even know they were your people. You know, like, and I didn't know this. And, and he says, I'm going to send you on a new mission, on a new place. He gets him off. He had a collision in his life. And it was at first a cultural collision. And that is the first collision that we will all face in our life. No one is born a Christian. No one grows up in a Christian home and is a Christian. To be a Christian, it means you put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And let me tell you what, that reality will come at a cultural collision. Now, historically, America has had a, an okay view with Christianity and has been positive in some circles. And so it hasn't been as, as, as stark in our past. It's becoming more stark today. But let me just tell you, when you come to faith in Christ... It will put you at odds with your culture, just like it did Paul. Let me give you one part of American culture that coming to faith in Christ will speak against. And it's this. In American culture, we do this. We celebrate the success of the, event, of the individual as the highest priority. Individual achievement is achieving the American dream. And that is probably the highest priority. So who do we celebrate? Athletes, performers, the brilliant in our world. We celebrate those high achievers as, as the people that are most prominent and valuable in our culture. But let me tell you what, that's fine. You can be successful. There's nothing wrong with that. It just won't save you. You can have all the success in the world, but Jesus will not look at you more positively as someone without that success. And we can look at that success as validation. God says, well, not in front of me. And that cultural striving can put you at odds with the gospel. No one comes to God on their feet. Everyone comes on their knees. The first collision is a cultural one, but secondly, it's an intellectual one. Paul says this in verse 11. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me was not man's gospel, nor did I receive it from men, nor was I taught it by any men, but I received it through revelation of Christ. He says, the gospel wasn't taught to me, meaning there wasn't an intellectual assent I arrived at, therefore I thought this was true. 
I didn't reason my way to faith. He says, what I came to was a collision with the person of Jesus Christ. And that revelation meant that I need to accept a entirely new way of thinking. Now, let me tell you this. You can't reason your way to Jesus alone. You can't stand on intellectual grounds alone. And I know that's difficult in our culture and our community because we value the intellect. Now, there is a huge, great place for apologetics in our culture. And there, are, there is reason to our faith. There is reason. But you can have all the reason and intelligence in the world and still stand on your feet as you come to Jesus and say, I've got here on my own intellectual ascent. And Jesus says, yeah, no one comes to me on their feet. Everyone comes to me on their knees. And besides, we all know people that are brilliant, that make bad moral decisions. Intellect won't save us. In fact, all you have to do is look at the Ivy League schools, which is an easy place to look, especially from here. You've heard recently, in 2019, there was this enormous cheating scandal that a lot of parents were a part of. How they would try to pay their way for their students to get into Ivy League schools. These were successful, wealthy people that were trying to give their kids a leg up, and they were pushing their way in. See, being successful, being intelligent, didn't Make them make good moral decisions. There was a, an article a couple years ago by, um, study of, with a study of business students. It was published in the Journal of Advanced Marketing Education by Brent uh, Smith and Feng Shing. And he, they write this. The national survey data shows regularly that business majors cheat more frequently than non-business majors. Uh-oh. Marketing majors, in particular, have a distressing rate of academic dishonesty. Education won't make us moral. (laughs) Education won't bring us to Jesus. It's not enough to have the right information. There's a transformation needed. So not first barrier is, is our culture. Second barrier is our intelligence. But third barrier is our success. And so Paul points to in verse 13 and 14. He says... For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church and violently, violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, so that so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He says, if there was a ladder to climb, I climbed it. If there was a status within Judaism to reach, I reached it. I was, I was the best Jew around me. I looked at all of my brothers that are all trying to strive to be perfect in front of God, and they couldn't get there either. I was ahead of all of them. I was advancing beyond all of them. But even in his advancement, that didn't make him in right relationship with Jesus. In fact, he was a murderer when Jesus stopped him. See, there's going to come a collision with all of us. And not our culture, and not our intellect, and not our success, past success will put us in a right relationship with Jesus. And many people in our culture have seen that and felt that. One of them was Michael Phelps. Right? One of the most successful swimmers in, in, in history. Won more Olympic medals than anyone. And he came after the 2012 Olympics, I believe. And, and I believe it was after Beijing, after he won literally everything. And he came and said, I'm completely miserable. And he lived a life going off the rails. And then a friend of him, a friend of his, a football player, came and gave him the book, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Because although he had all the success he could imagine, he had no purpose in his life. 
And it was in reading Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, that he came to place his faith alone in Christ alone. He came on his knees, not his feet. See, every one of us needs to come to a collision with the person of Jesus Christ. A moment when we say, you're it. I'm done. One of my favorite stories of this is uh, from C.S. Lewis. And he talks about it in his book, Surprised by Joy. And I'm going to read you an extended excerpt from that because I think it's absolutely hilarious how he describes his process of conversion. He says it this way. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever I mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I love that description. He's, like, he's going like, I guess God's real. You know, it just kind of falls on the ground. But he goes on to write this. I love this. I did not then see what is now the most shiny and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home onto his feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling, resenting and darting his eyes in every direction of a chance for escape. (laughs) Love that. But the words compel and tare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But... Properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. I love that description. He says, I was the least likely convert, but I came in on my knees to Jesus Christ, and he accepted me. The first step that Paul had on his journey was this collision with Christ. The second step Is this a time of preparation? Read with me in verse 15. It says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. The next step that Paul had along his journey is this. He went to be alone with God. His time of preparation was spent largely in solitude. He went away and he says he went away to Arabia. He went to the wilderness and all the way to Damascus. And let me tell you this. It's private devotion that always precedes public declaration. It's time in private where God carves into us the character he needs to be displayed. And he does this with all, everyone he uses. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness chasing sheep, right? Before he went to Egypt. David spent time as a young boy watching sheep alone in the wilderness. And then he spent 20 years running from Saul for his life in the wilderness. That's where he penned a lot of his, his, his poems and psalms. Jesus Spent 30 years under his parents. But even in Jesus' ministry, he got time alone with God consistently. It says this in Luke 5. It says, but even when more, the report went around about Jesus, great, great crowds gathered near him. But verse 16 of Luke chapter 5. But he would withdraw to desolate places 
pray. Jesus was part of his life was to withdraw and pray to get time alone with God. Let me tell you what, that time alone is where God is going to prepare you most. But it's challenging. Getting time alone is challenging, and I get it. So I've, I've got an amazing wife, Hillary, who's a veterinarian. She works a couple days a week. And I've got four kids that need stuff, right? Like, I've got a nine-year-old, seven-year-old, five-year-old, and three-year-old. They're busy. In fact, they're watching a movie in my office right now. I tasked other people to calm them down, right? I've got, I've got stuff brewing. I've got busy life. And the same is true for you. I mean, you're busy, you're working, you're at school, you're doing different things, you're, you're living a busy life. And to try to pull time away alone with Jesus, you're like, Kevin, you're not being realistic. In pastor land, maybe y'all do that. But like, if for the rest of us in real world, there's no way we can do that. But let me tell you, it's always been a challenge. Getting time alone has always been a challenge. Back in 1991, there was a guy named George Leonard who wrote a book called Mastery. He says there's a resistance in the world, particularly American culture, to be masters at anything, to master any type of field. And he writes this. He says, if you're planning to embark on a master's journey, you might find yourself bucking current trends in American life. Our hyped-up consumeristic society is engaged, in fact, in an all-out war on mastery. We see this most plainly in our value system. And so he's going to critique American culture from 1991. You'll see how he critiques it here in a little bit and how it's a little bit dated. He says this, Our society is now organized around an economic system that seemingly demands a continuing high level of consumer spending. We are offered unprecedented numbers of choices as to how we should spend our money. We have food, clothing, housing, transportation, medical care. We, also, uh, we are also enticed by the dazzling array of appealing non-necessities. And here's where it gets a little, uh, little uh, uh, dated. VCRs. Right? What are those? That's how we used to watch movies before Netflix. It was, it was, it was large. It was great. Uh, VCRs, uh, vacation cruises, speedboats, microwaves. And he, what he's saying is this. American culture will pull you away from trying to get alone to master anything. A book I'm reading recently by Cal Newport. It's called Digital Minimalism. He wrote a book a couple years ago called uh, Deep Work in which he encouraged people in their business world to, to focus on your work and not be distracted by technology. And so after he wrote that book, he's written a second book called Digital Minimalism, but he had got responses from lots of people that were describing the challenge it was to unplug from modern culture. And so he writes this, as my first book found an audience, I began to hear from more and more of my readers. Some sent me messages while others cornered me after public appearances, but many of them asked the same question. What about their personal lives? They agreed with my arguments about office distractions But as they explained, they were arguably even more distressed by the way the new technologies seem to be draining meaning and satisfaction. Look at those two words. The new technologies seem to be draining meaning and satisfaction from their time spent outside of work. It's always a challenge. Back in the day, it was VCRs. Today, it's that thing in your pocket that you live by called your phone. All of us find it difficult to pull away, and it's always been this way. In fact, Blaise Pascal said this, All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. It's always been a challenge. But if you want God to do something in your life, you've got to get alone with God. And that's what God did with Paul. Paul. 
I'm going to pull you away from culture. I'm going to pull you away from all these different people so that I can speak to you alone. We've got to get alone with God so that we can let God alone work on you. See, it's in that time of preparation when we get alone with God that God will begin carving the character into your heart to be a man or a woman useful to him. And you can't get that character carved in quick sound bites. You've got to get deep, devoted time alone for God to change the inner parts of your heart. Because the content you know needs to match the character of your heart. Otherwise, no one will want to hear you. That's what happened in Paul's life. That's why later on in his life, he could say things like this. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Now, it's interesting he would say that. See, Jesus saw, Paul saw Jesus face to face. He got a personal encounter with Jesus. In fact, he talks about another moment in time when he's taken up into the third heaven and given direct revelation from Jesus. But, but Paul doesn't land on those accomplishments or those significant moments. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the lowest because I persecuted the church of God. And he writes this of himself in 1 Timothy. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. He says, what we need is time alone with Jesus for that humble character to be carved into us. And you only make those type of statements when God has deeply broken our pride and our arrogance and our self-sufficiency so that we lean only on Christ And it's time alone where God is working on us. Dio Moody states this. Let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. That we get time alone when he begins carving us into the men or women that we need to be. Thirdly, Paul has a time of confirmation. A time of confirmation. Jump with me down to Galatians 1 verse 18. Then after three years, this three years of being trained and learning through revelation of Jesus Christ, what the word of God was, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw that none of the other apostles, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. See, Paul's trying to do a couple things in this moment. One is he's trying to prove that he got the gospel directly from the revelation of Jesus Christ. We didn't get the gospel by some collusion or some collaboration to get this message out. Paul's saying, I didn't, I didn't get together with all the guys and we didn't decide that the gospel was a good idea and then launch out with it. I got the revelation from Jesus Christ. But once I got that revelation from Jesus Christ, I needed to do a second piece. I needed confirmation. I needed to go into the community of believers and see if what God had actually told me was actually real. Was this in line with Peter and what he was teaching? Was this right? And the truth is this, we need people. Time alone is great, but you can get weird if you're just spending all of your time alone. What you need are the community of believers to confirm what you are saying and believing. Paul needed Peter. Paul needed Peter to help him grow in his own faith. And let me tell you this, you need fellow believers. 
The Christian life is never to be lived in isolation. You need fellow believers. One, to help you live a better life, but two, to meet you in your needs that you cannot meet yourself. So, this is a second challenge. Technology is a challenge for us, but secondly, actually taking time to meet with neighbors is a challenge, especially if you live in our community because people don't go outside. Like, I live in a, in a housing um, neighborhood, a lot of families, a lot of young kids. No one is outside. In fact, neighbors will come by and be like, oh, yeah, I saw you outside. And I'm like, why didn't you come over? And they're like, oh, I, was, I, was going, I was going inside. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, you know. I remember when my neighbor just moved in. Uh, he, he was moving in. He was literally backing up the U-Haul truck. I said to myself, I've, I've got to get out there. And so I literally walked over there and, like, directed him in. He's like, I guess I'm in Texas now, right? And <laughs> Because they're not used to actually seeing people out there helping. And I, and I was, the other day, I'm, I'm driving home. I've got the kids. I'm, I load them out of the car, and i got to go pick up a pizza. And my wife is gone, and I'm like, oh, no, i got to load them back up. This is going to be horrendous. And he's standing there, and he goes, hey, do you want me to watch your kids for a few minutes while you go pick up pizza? And I'm like, oh, God, yes. <laughs> Please, for the, you, would, you would watch them. You would, you, would, you would take care of all, and I could go alone. over, over and, and he's like, yeah, it's no big deal. And I'm like, Praise God. I, I, you need people. They'll keep you insane. They'll keep you sane. They'll help you make good decisions. They'll, they'll make you raise better kids or love them when you return. You know, like they, you need people. But not only do you need people, people need us. You see, Paul needed Peter to confirm all these things that he had learned. But secondly, Peter needed Paul. And there's a moment that Paul references a little, uh, a little further down in Galatians that where he opposed Peter to his face over a crucial issue of the gospel. And we need friends like that. We need friends that will stand in front of us and help us to be the men and women we want to be. He says it this way. In Galatians 2, he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. You need that. You need that kind of friend. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came to James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now here's what's going on. Culturally, Paul was saying, it is by grace through faith alone that you're saved. You don't have to add on to your faith the Jewish traditions. And this was a big barrier, particularly for, for Peter, who was in the church of Jerusalem, surrounded by the Jewish people. And so when the Jewish people came to this Gentile region where they weren't living that way, Peter took a step back. He took a step back culturally to what was convenient, what was comfortable. He says he drew back, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Look at Paul, man. He's, just, he's taking them all on. You're the leader of the church of Jerusalem. I will take you on. Barnabas, you're a son of encouragement. I'm going to take you on too, right? And then he goes on to say, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's the issue. He's not picking fights with everyone for no reason. He's saying, when your life is not consistent with the gospel that you claim to believe, that's when I'm going to step in. Good friends do that. They don't pick fights on everything, but they pick fights on the right things. And this moment, Paul stepped in and said, look, 
You're not in step with the gospel. And I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the Jewish laws. That won't save you. You can't earn your salvation with God. It is a gift of Christ. And when that life came in conduct with that truth, Paul stepped in. And we need friends like that. When our faith doesn't line up with our actions, we need a good friend to say, you need to change. Let me put my finger on this pain point and ask you to live differently. Do you have friends like that? We need them. Paul had a time of collision, a time of preparation, a time of where he's with Peter and the disciples and the community of believers. And thirdly, there's a time of deployment. Read with me in Galatians 1, verse 15. It says this. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal a son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Paul was a Jewish insider. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was very familiar with the Jewish people. But God is going to call him to go to the outsiders. He's going to call him to go to the Gentiles. Verse 21, then I went into the region of Syria and Sicilia, that's Gentile regions, and I was still unknown to, in person to the churches of Judea, which is in the Jerusalem area, that were in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. And this is what's amazing in Paul's life. When he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he then went and got prepared. He got in community. And when God said, go, he went. In the Christian life, there are no sideline sitters. There are no bench warmers in the Christian life. God didn't save you for you to sit in rows. He came to this moment. Like, why are we here? He came, we come to moments like this in church to be encouraged, inspired, equipped, to equip the saints for the works of ministry. We, we, we gather together to be encouraged as believers, but then we go to do the work. And that's what we see in Paul's life. And some of you are going to be deployed right here. Some of you are going to live in Bryan College Station and your mission field is BCS soil. Like, it's all right here. And so I want to give you something to think about. Your time of deployment, some of you are going to be deployed right here. I want you to think about this. I want you to grab a pen or a little pencil right in front of you. I want you to grab a piece of paper, something that you can write on, something physical. And I want you to look at that piece of paper, and I want you to draw three circles. I want you to draw live, work, and play. And I want you to think about your space here in Bryan College Station. I want you to think about where you live. That means your house, your neighbors, maybe your roommates, where you live. And I I want you to think about where you work. That's your job, your place of employment. And I want you to think about where you play. That's where you have fun. If you have kids, that may just be where your kids play. It may not actually be where you play. It may just be where they play. But I want you to think about who needs the gospel in those spheres. Where you live, do you know your neighbors? For me and my family, um, I want my house to be a place where people in the neighborhood find a safe place to come. And so a couple weeks ago, uh, school was getting towards the end of the semester. And uh, we've been become good friends with our, our neighbors that have moved in recently. They come to church here now. They're absolutely amazing. And, uh, and at one point, there was about 20 kids in our yard, all from like the neighborhood. And they come over and they're like, who are all these children? And I'm like, they're not mine. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I wanted to make a place where kids in the neighborhood found a safe place 
to play. And so I bring water out and give them water and, and snacks and whatever just to kind of create a safe place outside for them to play. And at one point, there was a new kid that came, and, and some of the other kids didn't like him, and they were kind of had a little scuffle. And my son, Jesse, who was like a, a huge defender of the territory, was like, you hurt us. And I'm like, Jesse, he didn't hurt you. You don't even know that kid. He's like, but he hurt them, and he, it's us. And I'm like, okay. I said, Jesse, this place is a safe place for kids to play. So I need you to go apologize to him. And tell him he can play here wherever, whenever he wants. Because that's what I want. I want in my neighborhood a safe place for people to connect and grow. And maybe where you work. Let me ask you, where you work. Do people know that you're a Christian? And would they be willing to have a conversation with you about it if they had a question? Do people know? And I'm not saying you have to have your Bible on your desk at all times. But do you live a life that's that's aligned enough with the gospel that people would see what's different within you. I work at a church, so it's difficult, but sometimes I get the pastor call and I get to go interact with people in different spheres because of the challenges that they're facing. And I love it. It's so helpful. Where you live, where you work, or where you play. And maybe just where your kids play. For me, my son plays soccer. Um, Micah plays soccer. And so when most people go to soccer practice, the parents are sitting on the sideline texting each other, not talking to each other. And so I do the opposite. I go play with the parents. And it's not because I'm an extrovert. I'm actually an introvert. I would rather be texting too, right? But I'm like, I've got to reach them. I've got to have a conversation with them. And so I intentionally go build relationships with the parents that are on the sidelines watching their kids play soccer. Why? Because they need the gospel too. And it's been fun. I, I got a relationship with several of them. And so we, on the sideline, kick the soccer ball around on the sideline, like reliving the glory days, you know, while the kids are playing and have conversations about life and develop relationships so that there's openings for the gospel, which there have been. Where you live, where you work, where you play. You can be people that make a dramatic impact right here with your life because there are no Christian bench warmers. But others of you aren't going to be deployed here. You're going to be deployed elsewhere. And that was Paul. See, what's surprising to me about Paul is that I would assume he would have gone to the Jewish people. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was an insider. He had all the information that would, that would translate to the Jewish people. But God in his sovereignty sent him to the Gentiles. I'm going to have you reach those people. And for some of you in this room, that's where God's calling you to go, to somewhere else. Now, I'm going to tell you something this morning, and I told the first service, that I haven't told anyone in 13 years of working at Grace Bible Church. It's this. Is this a safe place? I didn't go to Texas A&M University. I know. And it gets worse. All right? I went to the University of Texas. And... <laughs> watch your back on the way out. Um, so, but, it, but, it's, but it's even worse. Um, it, you can't tell now because uh, years have, have changed me. But all the way on the left, that's me. On the media guide of... Uh, of Texas uh, sports. And and not only was I on the media guide, uh, I was a poster child for University of Texas uh, when it it came out. And and so I was the poster boy for the enemy. And it gets even worse. Like, can I get it? Can can I get it? Kevin, how could it get worse? You went there and you were, you were repping them. Like, how can it get worse? And well, it did. Um, I was, I was captain of the enemy people. (laughs) That was me. 
And God in his sovereignty took this guy in orange. Why? Like, why would he do that? I mean, many of you are going like, well, how could he possibly take you from this place to that place? He took this guy in orange to Texas A&M to preach the gospel here. <laughs> and we've been here for 13 years, and it is absolutely amazing. We have absolutely loved our time here. And let me tell you this. God may deploy some of you elsewhere. You are part of Grace Bible Church. And let me tell you the amazing parts about being part of Grace Bible Church. We have a mission to get the gospel everywhere. So we have a campus that will be opening in the coming years. I don't know when, but in the coming years, in Bryan. Some of you need to consider, seriously, leaving what's comfortable. There's going to be economic barriers. There's going to be geographic barriers. But leaving those barriers to go to that place to help be a part of that community. In the coming years, we're going to be planting churches in America. Some of you need to consider, um, in the coming years, as that information comes forth, would you be willing to, to give up what you have to go bring the gospel to another place? And for others of you, God has been tapping on your heart to bring the gospel overseas. That you'd be part of bringing the gospel into the uttermost parts of the world. And God's been saying, hey, I want you to be part of that big mission. And some of you need to think seriously Is God calling me even there? I don't know where God is calling you, but I'll tell you this. If we willingly open up our hands to our lives and align with God's great mission, there's no telling what God can do. He could make even enemies friends. He could bring some longhorns to College Station. And you know what? He might even send some Aggies to Austin. He might send some Aggies to Washington, D.C., which he has. He might send some Aggies to East Asia, North Africa. He might send some Aggies all parts of the world to bring the life-changing message of the gospel that we all can be a part of. And that is a mission worth jumping in on. So where are you? For some of you, you're in a collision moment when you're trying to figure out, do you actually believe the gospel? Some of you are in a preparation moment. You need to get intentional time with Jesus to grow. Some of you need to be in a collaboration moment where you are getting into the gospel with people, the community of believers that we would come together. And some of you are in a time of deployment where God's calling you to go and you simply need to say yes. And pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that you used a man like Paul, not because he was perfect, not because he was pristine, but because he was willing to be used by you. So Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds, that we would be men and women to be used by you in this world. And some of that's going to be right here in Bryan College Station. Some of it's going to be a long way out. But I pray that you would move in our hearts and help us to simply say, yes, Lord, I will go. You lead me. Amen. We're going to close in one more song together. So please join us. Stand and join us as we pray, as we sing.